If you would, please open your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. It is on page 614 in the Blue Pew Bibles. This morning we will read verses 1 through 10. Let us hear the word of the living God. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the child, excuse me, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For your will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the Lord of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, you who gave this word by your Holy Spirit, called the Spirit of Christ by Peter, may that same Spirit open it up to our understanding, to our hearts, so that we will believe it, that we will live it out in our lives, cherish it in our hearts. Uh, Lord, that it will encourage us, build us up in Christ. Oh, Lord, use this word, we pray, for your glory and honor. Amen. Uh, I hope everybody got the little paper handout, most everybody. Um, And this is more for your uh, future use, but it does give some outline and simplify the passage in the way to kind of get to the essence of what's being said here. You'll see on the right side that there are really three commands that are given in this passage, and they're very interesting. Sing, expand, don't be afraid, or don't be ashamed. So, out of joy, that is singing and worship, out of a shame, a shame that has been taken away from you, then give yourself away 
and expand. The context for our expansion is the joy of salvation. And it is one in which we don't uh, suffer shame, but without fear we move out. But then you see these promises. Seeing because you will bear child, uh, children. Uh, Expand because you will expand. You will possess the nations. Command not to fear because you will not be ashamed. And then uh, piles on more promises. The Lord is yours. I deserted you, yes, but I have gathered you. I will gather you. And my love will never end. So we're just laden with promises in this passage uh, that encourage us to keep these commands. In fact, two of the commands are uh, kind of self-focused in the sense of you have joy and enjoy your relationship with me so that you are singing in expectation of what God will do for you and, and to do so without fear as you manifest his love in this world. This, um, so what's important, I think, is that we so often uh, bring the gospel to others out of, out of fear, out of guilt. Uh, and this passage tells us that unless the matrix and the centerpiece is your worship and enjoyment of him, then there's really no basis for this expansion. It is a kind of expansion uh, of, of joy itself. That's why in praising him, we say to others, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together, calling them into the joy that we ourselves uh, have. Now, so that's, that's kind of the outline. The, the problem is you can't really talk about uh, the singing because you're going to bear children without enlarging the place of your tent because women were the ones who put up the tents. So it's one piece there, these first three verses. Bear children and you better start getting more tents and bigger ones because you are going to bear a lot of children. And so you've got to expand, to expect to be fruitful and abundant. That's why you're singing, because you're going to bear children and you're going to expand. That's the basic feeling here. And then that, that not be hampered by your shame from where you've come from, uh, the shame of failure, the shame of mistreatment, uh, but that you be full of his joy and know that his love has taken you and will never desert you. So, so much said here to encourage us to the end that we enlarge our tent, okay? That's the feel of it. Now, a little bit on the context, because Brian so wonderfully preached on Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, uh, and this, of course, pertains to and is predictive of Jesus Christ's own suffering. So we need to see chapters 54 and 55 as one basic unit. It starts with the barren woman having children, and it ends in the last verse in 55 with the barren land producing fruit. So barrenness becoming fruitful is the beginning and the end of this passage, makes it one unit. And one has said that 54 is basically uh, giving us, it speaks of enlarging the tent. 55 tells us who's going to be there, okay? And 54 seems to be kind of focused on Zion or the church. 
have joy and without shame, enlarge your tent. 55 seems to point out to the whole world, doesn't it? Come and feast. Come, seek the Lord while he may be found, verse 6. But it's important to see that all of those who do come to the feast, who do seek the Lord, become part of the enlarging tent, right? And there's nobody in the enlarging tent that hasn't come helplessly without money to be at the feast. In fact, it is, in effect, a sharing of the feast, isn't it? So these are, these are interwoven. Um, and, of course, the very way we extend our uh, tent, so to speak, in 54, is by announcing, come everyone who thirsts. That's the very means by which people are brought into the body is through this uh, constant announcement to come to the feast and to seek the Lord while he may be found. <clears throat> so uh, we'll, we'll take 54 this week and then we end our whole study on Isaiah uh, with 55 next week. So let's talk first then about this, these first verses that, and we'll take in the idea of the command of sing and the command of expand. Uh, so first of all, joyful worship obviously is the heart context for this extension, okay? My joyful worship is the heart context. It's kind of your paper or document for expansion. It's the whole reason there would even be an eager expansion because we're sharing joy that we have. Even though by nature we were barren, he says, you sing because your life is going to be abundant and rich. So as we taste the Lord's kindness and promise, we make it known, manifested in the way we live in love and the way we speak to people, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So interesting again that before he says enlarge the place, sing, sing. Worship is essential. Joy in expectation of what God is doing in our life is essential. This word barren has as its background Sarah herself, Abraham's wife. Very interesting that before the promises come to Abraham in chapter 12, there's tucked away in the last few verses of chapter 11 this statement as he's describing the whole family of Abraham, Abram at this point. He says, and Sarah was barren. She had no children. And you kind of wonder... What's that going to mean until the first verses of chapter 12? Your seed is going to be like spread out throughout the whole earth. And the next chapter, look at the stars. Look at the sand on the seashore. That's going to be your seed. It's all in the context of the barren one. And the same word is used to describe her as, as barren. So he says Four times really here. He says barren one and then he ends with desolate one. Means uh, deprived of the care and support of a husband. No prospects in that regard. So barren one, you've never had, uh, you've never born a child, he says in verse one. You've never been in labor, verse one. You're desolate. But you are going to have more children than the one who is married. And the point is that this is going to be supernatural. This, this abundance that's going to be given you, my people, to enlarge the place of your tent, this is going to be supernatural. 
that you're going to have so many children, you'll need bigger tents and you'll need more of them. This expanding family cannot be explained through natural causes. It's going to be the work of God that brings it about. It's going to happen where you just think it couldn't have happened. Life is going to spring up where it just shouldn't spring up. It's going to be like flowers that are coming out of concrete, not just a little bitty one, but just bursting out of concrete. It just can't happen, but it's going to happen. It's a, a miracle of God's grace that's going to bring this constant abundance to his people. And it's all because of what the servant has done. In fact, all of these things are responses to the servant's work. Respond by singing. Respond by expanding yourself. Uh, respond by living without shame because so much has been accomplished for you. And in the New Testament context, we have those same kinds of things said to us. We, have, we are told, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What a radical statement. I was producing darkness. I was part of the suction to self and living for myself and not for others. And now, by His grace, it's not just that I'm changed a little bit, but I'm now light in the Lord. The radical statement that can only be because of God's grace. Or, as he says in Ephesians 2, he starts with, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1. And by the time he gets to verse 10, after making us alive and raising us with Christ, he says, now you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, for good deeds, for love. So you go from dead to this fountain that's pouring out of love because of the mighty hand of God. So it's the same way as saying you were barren, but now you're bearing children. Now you have many children and your tents will have to be expanded. We refused him at one point, And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, we thought the things of God were foolishness, ridiculous. And yet now we're urging them for others. We're urging others to believe in this Lord Jesus that we thought was just foolish at one point. This is the transformation that he is bringing in our lives so that we will be part of this enlarging of his people. And when it says in verse 3 that you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, your offspring will possess the nations, it's a way to describe the constant infiltration, you might say, the constant spread of more and more believers And the promise seems to be that it will not fail until it has affected all nations and all peoples and all tongues. And we see that in Revelation where it says every tribe, tongue, and nation is standing before him, worshiping him. Final fulfillment, you see, of that. Uh, So a a growing, uh, spreading abroad. This is why we are always devoted to mission and the church must be devoted to mission even at the point of great sacrifice because he says you will do this this will happen the church will spread through the nations that was jesus command wasn't it you'll make disciples of the nations and so here is one of those encouraging statements Uh, to people the desolate cities means to people places of darkness 
with those who love Christ and are manifesting the love of God. You see, it's a beautiful way to put it that you will people the desolate cities, viewed as desolate because they're without the love of God shown in Christ Jesus. And there is this final fulfillment, of course, in the new heavens and the new earth in that the whole earth will be devoted to God and glorify Him. But we get to participate in that growing uh, spreading of the gospel in that regard. And then, interesting how much he deals with this shame. Interesting how he deals with it in verse 4, and then we're going to jump to verses 6 through 8, and how God deals with our shame here. There are actually three words he uses, shame, uh, ashamed or shame, and then the word disgrace, and then the word reproach. So it means that whatever form of failure you have known in your life, okay, whatever form of being mistreated and degraded in your life, whatever form of humiliation and shame that you've known in your life, he says, and this is interesting how categorical this is. It's not just saying, uh, I declare you to not be ashamed. But he says literally here, you will not be ashamed. You will not be disgraced. Which is an indication of, I will bring my love and salvation and hope to bear in such a way in your life progressively by the Holy Spirit that you will not be disgraced and ashamed. And so this this verse itself can be one of profound prayer for us to use it in terms of prayer. Oh Lord, you promised that you would take away my shame. And we all deal with that at different levels in our life. But he does not want us to live that way and promises that he will gradually, uh, progressively remove it. He even says, you will forget the shame of your youth. You will not remember the reproach of your widowhood. These are glorious promises that we can bring before him and say, Lord, we expect you to do this wonderful thing so that I will so know your favor and your smile that it will outweigh the shame that I've had. I will so see the work of Christ on the cross for me that he's taken away my shame that I will experience that more and more so that I'm then free to give myself away to others so that I can spend myself lavishly, not hindered by fear and shame. So a wonderful uh, treatment of this in this, short, in this little brief section And then he says in verse 6, it's really the same thing. There's this idea of, well, but look where I was. Look how much I disobeyed you. Look how I abandoned you. Look how I was an adulteress and prostituted myself in these ways. Because this idea of this wife of the youth that is cast off, generally in, in the Old Testament, like in Hosea and Jeremiah and other places, It has to do with Israel's adulterous betrayal of her relationship with God and how she went to the idols. She bowed down to the idols. And so here's Israel saying, I turned my back on you. I despised you. I embraced anything. I, Lord, prostituted myself with the idols. 
And here's the Lord saying, but I've called you to be my wife again, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. Yes, for a brief moment that happened. You alienated yourself because you turned your back upon me and refused my love. Yes, I gave you over to what you wanted. You wanted your idols. I gave you over to that. And the result of this was your uh, uh, being put into uh, exile. But there's a, there's a precious little word where he says, like a wife of youth when she's cast off. And there's this idea, just imagine, say, a husband is in an environment in which his wife did abandon him and, and committed herself to prostitution, okay? And suppose this husband has never forgotten her, has always thought about her, always looking out for her, and one day... He's happened to walk by the block where they put up the prostitutes who've been through one level of use and abuse and now they descend to a next level and they're being sold again or the next level and they're being sold again. And he sees her. And he sees her eyes. They're vacant and she's ruined in so many ways and she looks like she's aged 30 years and 10. And... Her face is just riddled with hopelessness. And he sees her and he thinks, the wife of my youth, the wife of my youth. And his friends, a couple of friends are with him and they're like, dude, you need to back out of here. You, you don't need to mess with this anymore. You don't need to be around this. You just, you know, they're trying to pull him away and he's like pulling away from him. He's no, no, don't you see her? Don't you see who she is? And there's something of that in this, that the Lord takes you in spite of all that you and I have done to ourselves and others have done to us. And he looks at you and you're his precious wife of his youth that he's taking to himself. And he wants to beautify you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to love you. He really desires you. It's hard for us. We sometimes think God... He acts on some kind of transaction. Give me the list of people that are selected and I'll go out and get them. And that's kind of the bargain, you know. But he acts out of his tremendous compassion and desire for us. Even if you've never known the Lord, and there's this picture here of the people who had been in relationship to God and abandoned it. As human beings, you're part of a whole race that was in relationship to God and you abandon him. So you've left your husband whether or not you've ever personally known him. As a human being, you've abandoned that relationship and he comes to you no matter where you are and says, will you not be my wife? Will you not? And, and you're just, can you imagine this man coming up to the block and he pays whatever, but he more, more importantly, he holds his ring up to her and he says, won't you be my wife again? And it's not as though he feels like, oh, it's going to be so hard on me and I've just got to put up with this, but I need to help her and all that. He wants her for his wife. You understand? He wants her. And she sees it. She feels it. She can't believe. How could you want me? How could you want to embrace me and live with me forever? How can you? And, of course, we know that the Lord has accomplished this through 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a precious uh, description then of God that is sandwiched between these two sections about shame and recalling the deserted wife, where he says, verse 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. What a noble husband. What a powerful husband who holds the, he has the whole world in his hand. He's, he's the Lord of hosts means he's the Lord of almighty. He can do anything and he is your husband. Don't you know he will take care of you? He wants to be your husband and take care of you as only the mighty God could. He's called the God of the whole earth. His power is not just abstract up there. It is down where it counts here on earth, ruling and overruling all things to bring about the good things he wants to happen in your life, to conform you to Christ. And then there's this precious line where he says, the, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's your husband. He's your Redeemer. And that word, I remind you, this Hebrew word, goel, Redeemer, is the word used of the next of kin, where either a cousin or brother or uncle comes alongside a relative, identifies with that relative, and takes their cause as his own. Unites himself to them. If they have a debt, he pays that debt. If they're in prison, he does whatever's necessary to get them out of prison. But he owns their situation. And that's the idea here. God says, I'm your redeemer. I own your situation, and I will bring you completely out of it. But then we're sometimes put off by this phrase, holy one. I'm going to spend just a minute on this because I hope that Holy One will not be something that tends... Because it, it gets bad press uh, in Christianity. It's kind of the, the part of God that He's holy. We usually say something like this. He's holy, but He's also gracious. He's holy, so He might you know, punish you, but He's also gracious. And I want to give you a different feel for holy because notice... It's the Holy One that's your Redeemer. So Holy One can't be opposite of Redeemer. In fact, he's saying, because he's the Holy One, he is your Redeemer. And Holy points, first of all, to the absolute pureness of the love that God shows us. Holiness points to the purity of his love, how real that love is, how sincere that love is through and through, how thorough it is, how passionate his love is. That's a holy love, a love that has no motive but to do good. That's a holy, pure love, you see. That's the kind of God you want is a God who's holy in his love. And you see it in that it's a love that goes out of itself and in that way shows itself and it's highly vulnerable. I'll just give you an illustration of not a holy love. This was me at about 11 or 12 years old and this cute girl lived across the street, uh, Jan Taylor. And we were in her house. I and Angie Adams, my next door neighbor, were there and, and I asked her this question. I'm supposedly asking her if we can be boyfriend and girlfriend. But instead of saying, Jan, you're one of the prettiest girls I've ever seen. And I just, I just can't take my eyes off of you. I like you. I just 
gosh, it would just make me the happiest person in the world if, if you'd be my girlfriend. That's putting yourself out there, right? Because, I mean, you get your head chopped off then. You know, no, I think you're a, a geek and I don't want to be around you. you know? <clears throat> but this is how I said it. I said, Jan, if, if I liked you, would you like me? <laughs> Which is basically to say, I don't like you. No, don't think I do. I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm not out there. I'm not. But just say you like me, then, you know, if, if you knew I liked you, would you like me? That kind of thing. Now, I wasn't being, I was being very guarded, very careful. Don't want to get hurt. Don't want to act like I really like you, you know, trying to do it the safe way. Well, God is entirely the opposite in his holy, holy love. Take Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying this. Can you imagine crying before this city that has rejected him and saying, I would have gathered you like a mother hen would gather in her chicks, but you wouldn't have me. I mean, he's just totally showing his heart. I wanted you. I wanted you so badly. I would have gathered you and cherished you and loved you, but you wouldn't have me. You wouldn't have me. Or you think of Jesus' picture of the prodigal son's father. So undignified, they tell us, in that society to gather up your robes like, you know, a a runner or something and run down the street. This older man running down the streets, just crying and rejoicing. And they think, what? Your son that abandoned you, that disgraced you, that degraded your family? What? But Jesus says, no, that's the Father. He lets all, everything loose. He, he just runs and lavishes love and, and rains tears upon us. Because his love is a holy love. It's not a guarded love. It's not a careful love. It's not a self-protecting love. It's a love that spends itself lavishly. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And one more example is... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about that God has reconciled the world, has in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So here's God going out, giving his son, reconciling the world. And then Paul says, we now are ambassadors as though God was pleading through us. And we now implore you be reconciled to God. But imagine again this holy love that's not just, it'd be something for you to kneel in front of like a hundred people and kneel and, and say, will you marry me? And just suggest that you be sure if you do that. You, know, you don't want to be embarrassed in front of a hundred people. She says, no way, no way, dude. You know, at least do that in private. You know, don't do it publicly. But just think of this, for God through his son, to offer to you the wounds of his passionate love. Talk about being out front. I have done this that I might have you. Will you have me? Will you have me? Be reconciled to me. You're just stunned, really just stunned that that God would show such a holy love. So pure, so good to be that good to us. 
And so He will take away your punishment. He will draw you near and make you like Himself. He will love you with a pure goodness because He is a holy, holy God. And the rejection of that love is a serious thing because Jesus said to the cities Bethsaida and Capernaum, Woe to you, woe to you, because this grace came near to you and you rejected it. He says, it's going to be better for Sodom. It's going to be better for Tyre and Sidon, where Jezebel came from. It's going to be better for them than it is for you. Why? Because you rejected the pure love of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So, to transgress that pure and passionate love is a transgression and rejection of that vulnerable, exposed, unabashed love that offers itself. How glorious that is. And you see, that's why you can walk in and be more and more free of shame because you're governed not by how someone else has treated you or not loved you, not cared for you. You're governed by this vision of the amazing love that God has for you and has shown it in the person of Jesus Christ, that he has taken you and called you the wife of his youth and can't believe, you know, not in the sense of that, but there's this picture of he is utterly, infinitely delighted to have you, infinitely delighted to have you as his own. And it's for nothing in us. <laughs> we can't understand it. That's why later in chapter 55, when he says, the Lord will have compassion, he will abundantly pardon, he follows that with, because my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. You don't understand that kind of love that could have that kind of pardon and that kind of compassion. It's because your thoughts are not mine. Your ways are not mine. They're beyond yours. Uh, I have compassion in ways that you can't imagine. And of course, because of that, it is an everlasting love. <clears throat> we see that wonderful Old Testament word, uh, Hebrew word kesed, that means steadfast love. It's translated everlasting love in verse 8, steadfast love later in verse 10. And then he gives the picture of the same as the covenant to, uh, with Noah that will never be changed. It's like that, and it's like those mountains that will never change. My love will never, ever be taken away. He calls it, as Mark prayed, a covenant of peace, a covenant of shalom. Think of that. A covenant sealed in the blood of his own son that he will bring shalom and wholeness to your life. And you see, that's the context. That's the context for our making known of this grace to other people. That we can sing, we can enter into the joy, we can be more and more free of shame. And more and more, we really are saying to other people, not in these words, but with this kind of heart, magnify the Lord with me. We speak of Him in admiring tones. You know, we speak kind of His praises, to um, our admiration of Him to others. We try to tell them how wonderful and how great He is. And it's with the full assurance of His love, without shame, this is the wonderful basis and heart and motive of our hospitality to unbelievers, our befriending unbelievers in the many ways God gives us grace to, uh, our using these friendships then at some point to speak to them about 
the Lord Jesus and uh, not using the friendship, but in the midst of that uh, ongoing friendship to speak to them as God gives us opportunity. Um, how wonderful that we now are a part of what happens as a result of the death of the servant. Because in a sense, you see, chapters 54 and 55, we're in those chapters, uh, living out the post-death and resurrection of Christ and being a part of the spread of his gospel throughout the world. Praise God that we get to be light, we who were darkness. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with your holy love, a love that is pure, purely other-centered, purely good, and therefore it redeems us. Therefore you become our next of kin. Therefore we become the wife of your youth, and you become our husband. Therefore, Lord, you do us good forever. Oh, we praise you. Deepen us, enrich us with your grace that we, in turn, may continue to enrich others as we are able to live out that grace and proclaim it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.